morning. How's everybody? Uh, my name is Danny, and I am one of the pastors here. I'm going to be sharing with you today. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I want to thank uh, the guest speakers and folks that we've had share the pulpit, especially over the last four weeks or so. Uh, my wife and I were away for a bit, and it was great to, to hear all the, the really, really positive feedback. Uh, Kesed is a church that is uh, really interested in people who are spiritually curious. We are a church that is doing the very best we can to be a house of conversation. There's all kinds of other statements that we make here around that because Kesed is, uh, is, is, is wanting to be a place where people can come and ask all their questions and feel like they're a part even if uh, maybe their worldview is a little different than their neighbors. This series that we're going to do that launched today called Where the Girls Are uh, is a, an example of the culture here at Kesed. And even some of the feedback we've already gotten as we announced we were going to do it, it has just been remarkably encouraging. Not because people are super excited about the series, because there's actually quite a few people who are confused why we're doing it at all, but because we have such a mix of people in the room at each service and yet so willing to be in the same church together. We have lots of different ages in this uh, church. We have lots and lots of different worldviews. Uh, we've been saying lately that Kesed is a church where people complain about the sound being both too loud and too quiet during the same service. And that's regularly. People are like, I just don't understand why it's so loud. It's just so loud. What are they trying to do? And then other people are like, why can't they just free the spirit and the bass? I don't understand. <laughs> same service. Same exact service we get comments. I mean, some people, it's amazing that we just st stack them next to each other and we're like, welcome to Kesed. Like, that's who we are. This is what we do. So if it's too loud for you, we get it. If it's too quiet for you, we get it. If it's just right for you, don't worry, we'll change eventually. <laughs> this is the kind of church that we are. This series, here's the uh, kind of, the, here's the kind of uh, I guess, well, just look at the quote. It's a teaching series about myths and misconceptions we think the Bible teaches us about women. This is, this is sort of the theme of where we're going to go with the series. And what that means is that we have to understand that we might be reading the Bible the wrong way, or at least not fully understanding what the text is meaning, or where it comes from, or who it was written for. Now, that's all a lot of big stuff, but basically what I'm trying to say is, if we as a church don't have the right posture enter into this series, and we don't really sit in the lesson I want to give us today, as a body, as a community, around this idea that there are people who see the world different than you, and they'll probably go to heaven as well, then, then uh, everything we teach inside the series will be for nothing because the series in and of itself is powerful, but the posture that we actually have to take to get into the series, I believe is, is in an overarching way much, much more valuable for us as a community. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about that posture and how we're going to approach the series, and not just the series, but again, Kesed as a whole, including many, many more topics that we're going to be curious about. Uh, I talked about the two camps that, uh, that I've heard the loudest. There's lots of camps around this topic of women and biblical roles and, the, and what they're supposed to be and who they're supposed to become and how they're supposed to act. There's all kinds of camps, but there's really two camps that have been the most profound at Kesed. And uh, they're not the only camps, but they're the loudest ones so far. The first one is the, why are we even talking about this? Isn't it super clear camp? This is the I have nothing to learn camp. Now, what's funny is that these people are in the same camp in terms of the, the statement, but what they believe is clear is completely opposite of each other, and they don't even know it yet. They're like, it's super clear. Why are we teaching this? And they believe this. And then another person will be like, it's so clear. Why are we teaching this? And yet they believe something totally different, which is why we're teaching it. That's one camp we've heard. The other camp that we've heard is the, oh, great, more PC garbage from the pulpit <laughs> camp. This is the you'll never change my mind camp. These are the people who are like, Kess is trying to be trendy. Kess is trying to move with the times. Nope, Kess is not doing any of that because Kess doesn't care. What Kess wants to do is dive into the Bible and look and learn and, and challenge not only ourselves but each other around what this text means and see if there's some room for growth and, uh, and flexibility. Uh, I want to say that I receive to those specific people both those positions. I receive them, I hear you, and I'll answer them within the series directly, but I won't do it today. That's not what today is about. Today is about setting the stage for how we are going to thrive 
within such a controversial series, not just for the series, but for many different teachings to come. That's what we want to do. Today we're going to prepare for the mess. And church is really, really bad at this. And that's why this particular talk, uh, I think, is, is maybe one of the more important of all the talks you'll hear because of how bad the church is at mess. So let me give you an illustration. Uh, I shared with those of you who've been with us for a while that during COVID, my wife and I wanted to learn golf. We've never played golf in our life, and we had nothing else to do, so we decided to take lessons. So we took a bunch of golf lessons, and I got really, really good in the simulator, like so good, right? In this very clean room with a coach that could show me a recording of my swing and a big, beautiful projected screen that just, my, my ball, it was just amazing. I was just, I'm so good in a simulator. What I wasn't good at was looking the part of a golfer, which is important to me, okay? I wanted to know the etiquette. I want to understand the clothes. I want to be able to talk the talk. That stuff was important to me. And so I was nervous about my golf game, the first one I have ever played, which happened yesterday, because I wasn't sure that I would really fit in well. So I showed up, and I looked around, and I just, I'm so happy to announce, I just want you to know, I looked legit. Like, I fit in perfectly, right? I mean, I was like, I was like, I'm impressed with my own golfing attire, with my bag, with my clubs. I was like, I look as good as anybody here. It looks like I've been golfing for 20 years. And then we went out on the course. Now, anybody, who, anybody who's golf knows what's going to happen next, but those of you who don't, just because you swing well and do well in the simulator, um, none of that, I'm not even sure why I got lessons, I'm going to be honest. Because as soon as I went out on the course with the pressure and with the people and with the greens and with, you know, the rough and with the teeing off and all the stuff, it, I was unbelievably bad. Like, it was like every time I struck the ball, when I struck the ball, it was like someone had a remote control and just flew my ball wherever they wanted. <laughs> it was incredible. And I was so defeated that by hole four, and this isn't me, this, this says a lot about this, how bad I did. I actually pondered just quitting and going home. If we wouldn't have been an hour away, I think I might have. If we were in town, I just would have, I just would have left. I, it was terrible. The guys who were with me were really encouraging. Actually, Chris Crenshaw, who led you guys in worship today, he was with me. Uh, Chuck, who's one of our safety guys that, that runs around here, he was with me, and then my friend Nathan. So we all, the four of us were out golfing. All good people, safe people, encouraging people. So that, that wasn't the issue. It was just the fact that I don't know how to golf. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the adage, that uh, you can't get better at something and look good at doing it at the same time, right? Now, that's hard for me because I, I don't want to fail at stuff. And I, and I generally lean my life into things that I'm, that I'm strong at. I don't do a lot of this stuff that just, that just crushes my ego, you know, putt after putt after putt. So I'm feeling pretty bad about myself at this point. And then all of a sudden, we come down this certain section of the, the golf course, and there's a, there's a lot of really close houses. And I was like, you know, based on today, I told the guys, I don't, I don't think this is wise. I don't think there's wisdom in letting me hit this ball. And they're like, no, no, it'll be fine. And so I said, okay. And they said, just, just really aim away from the houses, though, because you tend to. And I go, I'll just, I'm just going to aim way away from the houses, right? And so I, I aim away from the house, but the guy with the remote control is such a jerk. And that ball smashed right into the side of this guy's house. And I mean hard. So hard that I yelled quite loudly, nice shot, Chuck. <laughs> and I got in the cart and I drove away. I drove away so fast that when the guy came out of his house to yell at us, that Chris Crenshaw's the one who took the brunt of his abuse. And I did not turn and protect him. I just drove away and Chris had to defend living on a golf course and all the stuff that comes with that. A few holes later, right, I'm pretty, pretty well all tied up at this moment inside. We come to another, uh, another fairway that we're going to go on, and it's right next to a, a road that's not super busy, but it's still a road. I turned. I told the guys, I've got some self-leadership. I don't think I should hit this hole. There's cars. I can take a life. <laughs> They're like, no, you're fine. It'd be impossible for you to get it up and over that fence in such a way. Not impossible. <laughs> the ball goes up. I see two elderly people in their beautiful white car driving down the road, enjoying their day, living their lives. Probably been married for 50 years. They don't know it's all about to end, but I do. <laughs> the ball goes straight towards their car and barely over their hood 
flies past their hood and window windshield. So much so, they slow down and look over at me, at me. And all we can do, all I can do is go. <laughs> like I meant to. Like I was like, hey, is that, is that Clyde and Chloe? Wham! Hey, I wanted to say hi to you guys. Unbelievable. Unbelievable how bad I am at this. What a mess it is. But this is the thing. This is why I'm telling you the story. I'm never going to be able to get better at golf unless I move into that ego-crushing work, unless I sit inside the mess, unless I go with, with people that I love and I allow them to coach me in something that I'm just not good at. The church. The church is like a golfing in a simulator. We live in this sterile environment, in this black and white system. We read the text. We mold our lives as much to the text as is acceptable. And we smack it up against the projector that is our fake life. And we come in and we smile and we're like, you good? I'm good. Boom. Incredible shot. Great life. You're awesome. I'm blessed. <laughs> and then we get out into the rough of the world. And some wind blows and some cars pass by. And there's houses all over the place. And we don't know how to be because we have this spiritual ego that says we have to figure it out. And the worst part of it is that the rest of the world is also trying to figure it out. And when they come and hang out with us, all we do is not do life with them. We just invite them to our church. We don't go golfing with them. We invite them into our simulator. And then we mold them. We put the right clothes on them. We teach them how to walk and talk and get, get, live a legit-looking life but we very rarely actually go out and just try. Just let it be what it is. This is why a series like this is so very important. This is why the posture within the series is more important than the actual topic itself because as a church, we've got to get better at doing the ego-crushing work of sitting with people and saying, let me tell you about a few times I, I messed up. Let me tell you about this time that I just missed altogether. Let me t tell you about this time that I thought I was gonna, and then this happened in my life, because that's what people connect with. That's the part of our story that is actually, really honestly, most church. This right here, this is fuel, and this is connecting, and this is beautiful, and it's healthy, and it's all part of God's system, but it's not the system. This is not the answer. I am not the reason. We are just doing the best we can to get some reps in so that we can actually go out and play the game. It's really important that we understand that because if you don't understand that, then this series is gonna be really, really hard for you. Let me just give us a, a, a few kind of uh, recap reasons around why we as the church uh, or who we as the church are. The first one is really simple. The root meaning of church is not that of a building, but of people. It's this word ecclesia, which is defined as an assembly of people who gather, or and called out ones. So if you're only gathering, but you're actually not living out the calling out part of the ecclesia, then you're missing the, the real full purpose behind the church. Paul refers to these people as the church in their houses. This building, as much as it is fun and exciting and such a blessing, again, is oftentimes how people value whether or not or where they go to church. You ask somebody where you go to church, they're like, well, I go to this building. I go to this name. I sit under this teacher. But that is not the biblical definition of church. Church is where you are and how you are, gathering with other people, talking about Jesus, and then going out, called by him to do the work. The other one is this. The church is the body of Christ of which he is the head. This is really, really important in, in now, day and times, because we oftentimes get confused with who's actually leading the church, because we love pastors, we love the brand of the churches that we go to, and many times that becomes more important to us than the actual love of the Jesus we're teaching about. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's talking about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. And so if we're not careful, the church can begin to look like a personality or look like a part of the world or look like a certain worldview, and it stops looking like Jesus. 
This is very, very important because Jesus wasn't Roman enough for the Romans and Jesus wasn't Jewish enough for the Jews. Jesus was in this really complicated space in the middle. So when you want to look like Jesus, the black and white stuff starts being really difficult to handle because Jesus is like, hey, follow me. Like, where, Jesus? Eh, wherever. And you're like, yeah, cool. So wherever's like, where is wherever? And he's like, ah, you know, wherever I need to go wherever I want you to go. And it's super uncomfortable. And yet he does it over and over and over again. According to the Bible, the church is that. It's the body of Christ and all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation are a part of this church. So again, the church is not a building. It's people. It's not people just gathering. It's people being called out. The church is the body of Christ under the headship of Jesus, not a pastor. This is very, very important because if, as we move into this text, if you're not careful, you'll start associating the text with my worldview. And if you disagree with it, it'll be that you disagree with Danny instead of disagreeing with the Bible. And if you agree with it, it'll be that you agree with Danny. And again, not the Bible. Or if you want to challenge it, it's that you're challenging Danny. And in many ways, even wrestling with the Bible is perfectly appropriate. I am only the messenger. And we are only a portion of the work that God is doing. So let's take it incredibly serious and not so serious at the same time. Let's recognize the work God wants to do in us may not be in this room. It's most likely in your heart and the places that you live and work and your homes. Now, let me say this. I really think that these parts that we've just talked about, the fact that we are gathered and called out, the fact that we recognize Jesus is central to the existence of who we are, I feel like at Kesson we do a fairly good job at this. I feel like part of it is our church planting culture that we were set up and tear down for uh, almost 12 years, that we, we don't, we, this building hasn't really changed much of our ethos. I think that we have quite a few guest speakers here, which uh, isn't common uh, these days. There's a, there's a lot of pastors who speak 45, 50 weeks a year. I don't do that. That's strategic. It's not only good for my family, it's good for you. Uh, we've tried to put this into who we are and what we're about, and I think that it gives us a, a great understanding of how we are to be the church because we're so good at these things. But there's more to what the church is. It's this next part that I'm kind of curious to see how it plays out here at Kesed. For it is this next part that defines and decorates the church because these things that we just talked about, they're not the things that the world's watching to know we're the church. Okay, the world, they're not watching like, well, do they gather and then do they leave and tell people about their God? Okay, and uh, do they not follow a single pastor or personality? Do they follow like a deity? Okay, good. I know now that they're the church. No, they don't, they don't care about any of that. They're not judging any of that, the rest of this world, the people we're supposed to be reaching. Instead, it's very specific. John 13, 35 says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What people are watching and what people don't even know subconsciously that they are judging is how well we love each other and them. They don't care about us gathering. They don't care about us going out and talking about our God. They don't care about the fact that, that we're debranded and we're all about Jesus and we're not built around one personality. They don't care. What they care about is do you love each other and do you love me? And that's the thing that we have to do incredibly well it also says in john 17 that they may all be one just as you father are in me and i in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me so that they all may be one so that they are unified around jesus the world cares about what we're unified around because being loving and being unified around anything is incredibly rare because you have to be willing to give space for other people who are a little more roman than you or a little more Jewish than you. You have to give space for people who come in like, what do you mean you see the world that way? That doesn't make any sense. This is how the world is. And so when you're loving one another and you're loving them and you're unified as one inside the mess that is the work of the church, then the world goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. These guys really love each other. And I'm pretty sure that guy's a, he's a Christian. He, I really sense, I mean, we don't vote the same, we don't talk the same, we don't look the same, but he's always so loving to me. And I watched him disagree with her. You know what? 
Like they still went to church together. They still had dinner that night. They still had conversation. There wasn't like this whole partisan sort of splitting up and let's all group up and that's the world. That's how the world works. The world doesn't care about us getting the buildings because the world loves buildings. The world doesn't care about whether or not we have a brand or not because the world loves branding personalities up so they can tear them down. There's nothing better. But the world is terrible at loving each other and especially at loving people who believe different than them. So these two beautiful verses are given to us, this, this posture, right? This posture of being uh, lovingly unified is given to us, saying the world will know, all people, we're, the verse has all in it, all people will know that the world may believe that you sent me. The whole world is all around this idea that it is watching us be lovingly unified or not. So experiments like this series are great for us. Because it tests how loving we can be, and it tests how unified we can be. This is who we are called to walk out this person of Jesus, and this is exactly what he did. He was lovingly unifying. And he sat with all kinds of people, with all kinds of worldviews. And he was honest, and he was authentic, and he was genuine, and he was transparent, and he was bold, and he was convicting. This is what it means to be the church. Now, if that's your heart, you'll be fine during this series. You will survive just fine. You're not going to agree with all of it. I just want you to know that right now. Anybody who thinks I'm going to like, right? I mean, we're, we're going golfing, and none of us have ever done this before. So anybody who thinks you're just going to get hole-in-ones after hole-in-ones after hole-in-ones, I don't know anybody that does that, especially in a spiritual climate. We are going to have some terrible games. But if we decide to lean into this loving, unifying posture, then we're going to be fine. And the world will watch, and it will notice. But if you're not about that, and you're just here to drive home your worldview, or what you believe, or why you think what you think is right, if that's what you're all about, you will not survive this series. Filled with the Holy Spirit, I just want to invite you to go to another church. Officially, as the pastor of this particular church, if you are not about any kind of learning, if you are not about any kind of space or vulnerability or curiosity, you will not survive here. And there are so many churches that have, have that kind of grouping. You just got to go to enough to find the one that fits every single thing you want. Or, as I told one member one time, start your own. Just, just do, just be the theology of, you know, Mike. This is how Mike sees the Bible. These are Mike's edicts. This is what we do at Mike's church. I made that name up, so if you're Mike and we've had conflict, I'm not talking about you, chill out. <laughs> Start your own. On top of that, if you don't really want to be here, I mean, you know this from the bottom of my heart, I don't have enough parking spaces as it is. So <laughs> create some space for people who do. Amen. Yeah, good, good. A <laughs> bunch of people right now thinking, I don't know if he's serious or not. I am. There's only so much room at Dairy Queen, folks. So let me, because I want to make sure you have all the tools to navigate. I want to make sure you have all the tools to make good judgment calls. Let me give you some handlebars by which to steer yourself through the next few weeks at Kesed. This is, these are tools that you can have in order to kind of navigate where we're going and sort of our overall approach to how we're going to read the text and talk about it. Here at Kesed, we believe, these are the two handlebars, that there are close-handed and open-handed issues discussed within the Bible. Okay, this is, how, this is our approach to how we're going to read the text. There are things that are close-handed, and there are things that are open-handed. I'm going to give you examples of both so you can judge me all the way home. When it comes to close-handed issues, we believe they are the non-negotiable tenets of our faith. Okay, these are things that not, are not up for discussion. These are things well-defined. These are things that, that are core tenets of what it means to be a Christian. Here's a few examples of close-handed issues. First, this is just a few examples. There's many. There is only one God. Now, I am fairly secularly connected in our community. And what that means is I sit with all kinds of people from all kinds of walks of life. And this particular issue has caused me to, uh, 
to cease some lunches or at least them cease lunches with me because being fairly inviting, being fairly welcoming, being fairly, fairly open to curious questions, uh, when people finally ask me or get to a place where they're like, so there's like room in your belief for, like I hear what you believe about God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, the whole thing. There's room though in your belief system, right, for like, for like my God. And like I, I respect what you're doing and, and I don't know that your God doesn't exist, but there's room in the universe, right, for like my God and then they'll define their God. And then I listen and I wait and I have a sip of coffee and I'm like, oh man, I mean, totally not. <laughs> and then they're like, what? And I'm like, no, you're I mean, your God doesn't exist, so I can't tell you there's, there's room for you to, to seek and search, but, but your God's, like, not real. And you, there's, there's tension in that, but this is a close-handed issue with me. So it's loving for me to speak truth to this person because they've asked the question. Now, have I ever, like, dove into someone's story and been like, just so you know, real quick before we move on, you know your God's dead, right? My God killed it. Like, he killed your God because your God sucks, right? Like, like, I don't, that's not what I've ever done, ever. I wait till they ask the question, but when it comes down to is there room for any other gods, the answer is no. Here's what others, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things and through whom we exist. It's it. It's over. You don't have to be curious about it anymore. You can be curious about its impact on your life, but no. It's not my God and your God and 15 other gods and we're all just like in a room just hanging out. No, no, there's one God and I want to tell you about him when you're ready to ask the questions. That's a close-handed issue. And I know that hurts probably some people even in this room right now. And that's not the intense, it's not the intent of what I'm trying to say, but I have to give some good examples. Here's another one. All have sinned and so live separate from God. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This means no matter how performance-based your life is, no matter how much you accomplish, no matter how good of a person you are, you and your eternity are not going to go well without being introduced to the one and only God. Everybody is and wrestling with depravity, including me and everyone else. Here's a third one. Saving relationship with Jesus is the only way to forgiveness and so restoring relationship with God. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is closed, handed, done, sealed. It's over. Jesus is the answer. He always has been, he always was, and he always will be. That's what we are here preaching. That is who we build everything upon and that is why these are close-handed issues. Now, these close-handed issues are foundational for all born-again Christians. And they're taught in such a way, as you grow up in your faith, to just bring them in, to own them, to set them as the cornerstone of your faith so your house isn't built on sand, and you live your life. But what often happens is the approach to Scripture stays like that. And there's no longer any open-handed verses until they become verses that are inconvenient to you. Here's a few examples of open-handed verses. First, the definition. When it comes to open-handed issues, the Bible often teaches through open-handed verses a range of faithful options. Meaning, this is a verse. Here's some meaning. Here's some culture. Here's some content. You can look at that verse and be like, oh, let me evaluate that and how that applies to my life today couple examples and this fits right into our series and again we're going to dive really into this in the next few weeks but i'm just sort of setting the stage setting the tone the one example would be how women present themselves uh we'll stay in the new testament because some people think if it's in the old testament then of course we can throw it out not true by the way but but a lot of people do that so i'm going to stay in the new testament so that you can wrestle with your own religious prejudice uh by yourself here's a verse that that in the new testament it's paul Talking to Timothy, this is what he says. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. So, any uh, braided hair sinners in the room right now? You're just like, I didn't even know, Jesus. I didn't even know, right? <laughs> Anybody wearing clothes they didn't get at a, you know, a, a rummage sale or weren't hand-me-downs it says costly attire it means something you paid for you paid a cost for anybody buy anything new in the room yeah straight pagan work that you're doing in your life right there 
Don't know if this is in the room. Pearls. <laughs> yeah. A couple of our older ladies in the room, you've been sinning for years. <laughs> your husband bought you a sin necklace on your 40th. Like, here you go, honey. Ah! Pearls. <laughs> Pearls of sin you give to me. Why would you do that? <laughs> this is a New Testament verse from a, from a profound authority based on how, talking about women. There have been entire denominations that have taken this verse and applied it literally. Basically, everybody there looks like Ma Ingalls after a snowstorm, right? It's just, it's just crazy. Just, she just looks like she's just, it's just a mess all the time. But she loves Jesus and her hair's out to here. And, right? And I mean, this is, this, is, this is an open-handed verse for us. We'll talk more about it. Here's another one. We'll come after some of the guys in the room. Men having long hair. Men having long hair. 1 Corinthians 11, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, ooh, it's powerful, it is a disgrace for him. Ooh. We got some men with no hair in here, and you're like, that's right, preach it. <laughs> you're like, the only hair you're supposed to have is this little uh, wreath of the Lord along the back. That's it's the only hair that matters. That's nature right here. This is nature. <laughs> And what is long hair? Pastor Shoulders? I mean, is Chris, our, our worship leader, he's growing his hair out. Are we just watching his sin life before us as his luscious locks wave back and forth during Oh Praise the Name? What? How have we lost our way? These are New Testament verses. And here's the profound thing, right? We read them in our culture at, all time, at our times. All three services now, the same experiment has happened. And we giggle. And yet, there are other verses that we read, some written by the same author, that we take so literally, they're not giggle verses, they're get-out verses. Like, this is giggle. <laughs> Women with, you know, whatever, pearls. Oh my gosh, men having long hair. Like, that's so, <laughs> that's so like early church stuff. And then there's this verse that's like, oh, if you don't believe that, you should not be here. Same books, same author. We've just been raised to believe these ones uh, and these ones. Uh. And all I'm asking is for the series for us to be curious about both. Maybe there's some open-handed stuff we should grab back a hold of. Maybe there's a bunch of stuff that we haven't read for years because culture has tore it out of our hands and we're like, ah, that doesn't really matter. And it really does. Maybe there's some stuff we've held on to for years and years and years. And we need to open our hands and see if there's some other faithful options. I'll give you another example, one that hits fairly close to home, and this one we'll actually teach on just for a few minutes. This one's a little more gray, a little less Roman, a little less Jew. It's just somewhere in the middle for a lot of people, and that's tattoos. Uh, I've been defending this particular point of view for uh, about 20 years. <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do it again. Here's the verse. I have to go into the Old Testament for this verse. It's the only one, so... Uh, oftentimes when I sit in a meeting with someone who wants to confront me on it, I know they're, they're pulling out Leviticus. It's Leviticus 19.28. There's the verse. It says, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. And then it ends with this really beautiful, profound, I am the Lord. That's usually what people hit me with, is the I am the Lord part. They're like, you see it right here. And then he hits us with, I am the Lord. Are you, are you going against what the Lord said here? Because this isn't a person talking, this is straight up God. And I'm like, no, I'm just reading like the whole passage. This bothers people a lot because people don't read passages before and after verses like this. They have an idea, they wrap their arms around it, and suddenly there it is. If you read the whole passage and you read everything that's happening inside the story, here's what you realize. God's people are moving in to take over a land, and within that land live a whole bunch of pagan cultures. The reason for the prohibition of tattoos in this passage is most likely because pagan people at the time tattooed themselves and adorned themselves with the names and symbols of their gods. And so God goes in and says, listen, don't do this. Don't be like these people. Don't, don't worship me in that way. Don't, don't, or worship their God in that way. Don't do these things. And so he sets his people apart, like many other principal things that they do within this series that set his people apart, and almost all of them cultural. And so, 
Here's the principle that I've learned. Does that mean that some tattoos can be sinful? I think so. Do you want to tattoo yourself for witchcraft, which I've spent time with somebody around that, or tattoo yourself to bring uh, praise and glory to a false god? If you want to tattoo yourself to, to, uh, to honor harm that you've done, uh, these, are all, these are all sinful reasons. But they are not the principle that governs many people who get tattoos, especially in the Christian culture still today. Getting a tattoo is not sin per se, according to the text that I read. It is a matter of Christian freedom and should be guided by biblical principles and rooted in love. Now, my own story with tattoos is rather simple. I didn't even know it. I was, a lot of it was subconscious to me for many years because as a child, I was a Dornbecker kid. I had cancer. And uh, when you get radiation as a child, they tattoo you. So I've had, I had my very first tattoos. I have four dots, two on the front of my chest, two on my back when I was three years old. These experiences hung with me a long time until I was 19, and when my parents went through, the, through a divorce, I went and marked the divorce on my body because I just felt like that's the only way I was going to survive it. I went through another traumatic experience. I ended up marking that. I got married. I marked that. This is basically my journal is what this is. People go, do you journal? I go, hey, yeah, yeah, I do. Every time something happens in my life that I need to seal up, every time that something happens in my life that I need to express for 15, 18 years, I would just subconsciously go and get a tattoo that represented it. Only in therapy did I realize I was doing this, and so the tattoo process sort of changed for me. That's just my story and my example and why I've done it. I don't, I, I, I'm not somebody who does tattoos to be trendy because when I was doing them 19, well, I was 19, so over 20 years ago, they really weren't. As a matter of fact, they were sort of borderline, like, I don't know if you can do ministry with those. <laughs> and I was like, guess I'm not doing ministry then, because this has to happen for me. Everybody has a different journey around these kinds of open-handed things. And when you shut down somebody's journey with verses out of context, plain and simple, you break relationship with that person. We need to get better as a church at open-handed issues like these. We need to understand that some verses in the Bible are culture instead of commandment, but the principles are overarching and last forever. Defining, this is why it's important, these types of close-handed and open-handed issues is very important to any church community. And here's why. I speak a lot in our church about church hurt, church woundings, and even church damage. I do it a lot, I do it often, and it bothers a lot of people because they want us to represent the church well. They want us to protect the church. I'm just here to tell you, uh, and I don't remember the poster, but it's the one like nobody needs to like protect the, the roaring lion. Like he does a fairly good job of it himself. Like I do not have to protect this place. I, do, I don't. It's not my job. I didn't, I didn't build it. I don't own it. I, I don't, I don't, it, it's all God's and he's going to do what he's going to do with it. And I'm just excited to be a part. But oftentimes the church has been hijacked by people with bad theology bad intentions and unresolved motives, and it's been used to hurt other people in the name of that God. And that part of the job, that is mine. That is our job. Our job is to go, no, no, no. That's not, that's not the lion that, that we serve, okay? That's a whole other kind of animal. And our job is to stand up against that stuff. And much of the hurt happening within the church is due to a lack of thoughtful engagement around open-handed and close-handed issues because someone comes into the church and they need a big, giant punch in the face. They need it. They just need it. They need to be told, like, there is one God. They need to be told they're sinners. They need to be told what you're doing is destroying your marriage. And everybody in your boys and girls club is telling you it's okay, but it's not. And they need a giant spiritual right cross right across the face. They do. And we open-hand them. Well, you know, your sin's okay. Because we think, we think that's loving. Then on the other hand, somebody comes in and they have really genuine concerns. They need an open hand. They need somebody to be curious with them. Not that their stuff is perfect where it is right now, but there's hard conversations to come. But you just got to get them out of the water they're drowning in. And we walk up and we're like, in the name of Jesus, boom, change your life. And they're like, oh my God, I thought your God was going to help me. And it's like, oh, he's going to help you. Get back up out of that water. I got more where that came from. This is what we do. And both situations damage people. 
When we don't show up to fight a good fight, it damages people who need that fight. When we show up to fight a bad fight, it damages people that we hurt when we're supposed to be helping. We don't sit inside these open and close-handed issues. And this makes us, and I'll put this on the screen, a church that is masterful at saying one thing but doing another. We are masterful at it. We do it all the time. I'll give you a few examples. We say things like, we accept everyone. Every church in town says this. Every church, we accept everyone in our church. It's like a thing. It's like, it's, it's a strategy. But what they're really saying is, we accept everyone as long as your lifestyle adheres to my understanding of acceptable. Which, by the way, is constantly changing within the arc of your life. What you find acceptable right now, I promise you, 20-year-old version of you would be ashamed. He or she would self-righteously look at the decisions you've made and judge you deeply. I can't believe we became this person. You know it's true. You know it's true. They'd be like, you're going to a church with an electric guitar. Don't you know it's only ribbons for us? <laughs> right? Anybody grow up in one of those churches? I had a church like that. And the ribbon lady was so kind, but the worship came and she just became like, like you had to, it was like she was trying to land a plane. It was so intense and so distracting. It was so distracting, but you know, hey, who knows? Some of you are the ribbon lady in your church, aren't you? You're like, I still got those at home, right? <laughs> That's all right. That's fine. My point is we deem other people acceptable based on the season of life we're in and the worldview we have right now. But what would 20-year-later version of us say about how we're treating people at the moment and who we're accepting? How about this one? We believe struggles should be faced and overcome here. That's how we should do it. Unless your struggle is socially acceptable, like gossip. Or your struggle is really similar to my own struggle, really similar to my own. This is, this is a very significant pet peeve in my life when it comes to being part of a church, and that is people who have these incredibly dogmatic views about the world, about other people, about other things, but clearly within their life, they struggle in like these immense areas, and when you approach them about those areas, every single time, that particular struggle becomes a nobody's perfect issue, or everybody's human issue. It, it's profound to me. How many people are like, dialed in on something like, for instance, outside their marriage. I mean, it's like, man, you're so refined and you've thought through this and you have like a thesis on this. And then you get them alone or you get alone with the wife and they're like, he's just a jerk. And it's like, wait, but the person God has called you to love the most, you love, it seems, the least. But your program's legit, bro. This happens all the time. And then the excuse is, man, I'm doing the best I can. Well, why can't everybody else be doing the best they can in all the issues you're worried about? Why can't everybody be in process like you are in this area that you wrestle with? This is what turns our church into this confessional versus functional hypocritical system. Because what we confess to be versus how we function are constantly at war with, with each other. <gasps> the Bible talks about this, I think. It's called the Spirit. And the flesh, and they're always at war with each other. And for some reason, it seems like the most refined Christians are the one who deny that this is happening the most, that they're not in a war within themselves. And yet, here's the saddest part of the whole thing. When you love people in unity, the language that people understand the best is the language of hurt and healing. It's the language of, of, of shame removal and hope. And yet, that language is a wartime language. This is why uh, policemen connect with each other. This is why uh, people who, who do ER work, right, connect with each other. This is why therapists are therapists, by the way. Therapists are therapists because some kind of crap happened in their life. That's why they're therapists. And they realize somewhere along the way that they had to get unwoven and that unwovenness awoken them. This is why pastors are pastors. This is why helpers are helpers. And they speak the language of war and they connect with other people who know that they're in war. And then we've got a bunch of refined, milquetoast Christians going to a little black and white church saying, I'm just fine because of the blood of Jesus. I don't have any struggles. 
And I'm like, whoa. Like, way to make a tiny, tiny cross just for you to wear around your neck. That cross was gory because you and I, we are all kinds of messy. And Jesus Christ speaks that language. And he calls us to speak that language. And when we can do that, then suddenly we can have conversations we could never have before. Do you know I haven't had one single woman out of 14, 1,500 people that go to this church ask me why we're doing this series? But I sure had a whole lot of men. <laughs> whole lot of men. <laughs> and it's not like, hey, man, it's like, bro, like, why are you doing this? And I'm like, I'm doing it for you. Because women understand the oppression that they feel. Women understand how this book has been used to hurt them. They speak that language. But guys, not so much. Not as much, or at least not in this particular arena. We have it in other areas, but in this one, we've kind of owned this church for a long time. That makes us sort of responsible for where it's at today. How are we doing so far? I wonder if that's because we're missing some of the other pieces. <laughs> namely the person sitting next to you. We have to decide as a church who we're going to be, and we have to decide how we're going to walk this out. It's important. It's important because all of this open-handed, closed-handed availability, it all adds up to become the voice of the local church to our community. That's who it adds up to. That's what matters, is how we proclaim Jesus. And so the question is this in closing, when it comes to the views we hold around women in our church, what will the voice of Kesed sound like? What will the generations to come hear of the work we did with the time and influence we were given? Will we shrink away because it was too hard? Because it'll mess up our momentum, as someone told me? <laughs> like we created the momentum here. That's so funny to me. It's like we're in a boat and we got caught up in the current of the Lord and somebody's like, now listen, make sure everybody look forward. We don't want to mess up this current. Don't turn around. Don't be curious. Don't look at all the sights that the river's bringing us to. We want to make sure we, we don't slow down the current. You try. You, you try that. Do you know what happens? This is a personal note and I'm running long, but I don't care. Here's what's going to happen in our church. I've had a lot of people ask me lately about moving away, about moving to a part of the world that, uh, that would be easier for them to be the Christians they see themselves as. I just, I just gently want to say this. Here's what happens if we all decide to move away to an easier part of the world. Somebody in town who's probably a pagan right now gets awakened by a really small whisper of the Lord. It'll be a weird thing, something that happens. It'll happen in a dream. Who knows? A little rock will cry out. And they'll be impacted so much by this thing that God did. They'll go sit with another pagan at coffee, probably both tattooed all the way up their necks. And they'll be like, can I, can I talk to you about something? This thing happened in my life and it, it, it's so strange, but I, I think I met God. And this other pagan will be prepared by God for this conversation. And they'll be like, man, I, 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 think, I think we need to get a Bible and figure out, let's Google what that means. Because all the Christians left and moved to the easier parts of the United States. And they'll Google and they'll mess it up and it'll be a mess and then somebody else will come that's terrible and somebody else will come that's terrible and all of a sudden they'll just build this little terrible church. It'll be terrible. But they'll be lovingly unified. And people will go, did you hear so-and-so who believes different and so-and-so who acts different and so-and-so who is different all get together every Friday night to talk about this God they met? It's crazy. We should show up and make fun of them. And they'll show up and then they'll be impacted the next person will be impacted and the next person will be impacted and all of a sudden there'll be this beautiful loving church right here that we left and God will bless it and God's agenda won't be missed or thwarted in the least and we'll all have missed out being a part of it so I'm asking you if God has called you to this part of the world to this hard and difficult messy part of the world to just commit it's hard to raise your kids here. I get it. It's hard to find a church here. I get it. But what if God's called you here to do a beautiful thing that you are perfectly prepared for that only you, only you can do at this moment? You are anointed to lead it, to start it, to reach it, to protect it, to build it, to give to it. 
what would happen if we were the Christians that went out and brought those pagans in? What would happen if we were the rocks that cried out for the Lord? If we accepted and loved and wrestled and convicted? What would this look like? If we loved people so much that the only thing left of us was a group of loving, unified, lost people who found each other in Jesus. We were all forgotten. He remained. His church would grow. His, his legacy would be built. We'd get to be part of it. And our kids would be impacted by it. And the stories would echo. <laughs> you and I would just get to flow in that current of loving people and being unified around the one who loves us all. That's the dream. That's where the girls are too, by the way. We're going to find them. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be powerful, and I hope you stay with us the whole way through. Amen? We stand and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, so, so very grateful for uh, this space, for what you're doing, for the way you're moving. So, so very grateful for the, the arms you're opening. We ask, God, that there would be nothing but, uh, but you and your agenda. We thank you, Lord, for what you're breaking down, for what you're building up, for the way that you're lifting, for the way that you're laying. We ask that we could just be part of it. Just allow us to be part of it, God. Only glory to you. Thank you for every person in this room and the part they play, for their curiosity and willingness to engage. We just pray, God, that that would continue on throughout the rest of this week as you speak to them, as you meet them, as you lift shame from them, as you anoint them. We are thankful to be part of your church. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen. Thank you guys for coming. We'll see you next week. Don't forget there's ice cream outside if you want to uh, visit and hang out. Love to have you. Thanks all. Thanks all.